Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features composer Viet Quang. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore. And today, my lovely and wonderful co-pilot is the brilliant and fantastic Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you today, my dear? I'm doing well, Rosie. Thank you. How are you? Oh, just, just dandy. Enjoying the beautiful weather that we're having currently. So we're really excited to interview our first composer of the season, the brilliant and fantastic Viet Quang. Viet has been called alluring and wildly inventive by the New York Times and irresistible by the San San Francisco Chronicle. He has been commissioned and performed on six different continents, which is pretty extensive, by musicians and ensembles from around the globe, such as the New York Philharmonic, Eighth Blackbird, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, So Percussion, Alarmable Sound, Atlanta Symphony, Sandbox Percussion, and honestly, the list goes on and on. This composer is just so prolific and so wonderful, and we are absolutely delighted to be talking to the brilliant Viet Quang today. So how are you, my dear? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. You grew up playing a multitude of instruments, including piano, percussion, and clarinet, and performing in your high school and marching bands. It seems to be quite unusual to find classical musicians who have embraced their marching band experience. And can you tell us what kind of an impact that has had on you, both as just a human being and as a composer? Yeah, you know, I've always found it kind of odd that... uh professional classical musicians, they'll like, you know, freely talk about their background with learning piano at a very young age or going to whatever pre-college at the city nearby, but then something as impactful for so many young musicians like marching bands or just being in the school band or choir orchestra isn't something that people like to speak proudly about. But for me, it was just really impactful because when I was in marching band in high school or just concert band or percussion ensemble or clarinet choir, or whatever, I always felt just so um, safe and inspired. It was like the place in high school where I felt like I could really be myself. And I think for every kid growing up, that's like a really something that we all cherish and we don't necessarily know it at the time. Yeah. In doing music, it's something that you can do with other people. And it's like you actually have a common goal with other people. And it just... Um, lets you express yourself, but also find a sense of community. That That's really interesting that you say that. This is uh, something that I think a lot of musicians and also I'd 
art kids and theater kids, like everyone says sort of they find their community and they find their place to be. But what drew you into music to begin with? Was it this social element or was it the artistic aspect? Was it both? Was it neither? Yeah, uh, I have to give credit to my mom when I was really young because my mom, well, she's an engineer. My dad is like, was a physicist and they obviously very very much valued things like math and science. And my mom read this like article about the so-called Mozart effect. And Oh gosh, that thing. (laughs) So I, I joke it backfired because I got too serious with music, but I started like Suzuki piano when I was like five or something and I didn't really like it because I think most five-year-olds don't enjoy practicing the piano seriously like I only went <laughs> to piano because I remember there was like a vending machine and I could get like Twizzlers afterwards like that was like the way my mom bribed me <laughs> to go and so excellent and you know I was like a, a still am like a very big fan of like Disney movies when I was younger the idea of being able to play like any of those songs on the piano was appealing to me. But the thing with Suzuki is that's not part of the the method. <laughs> and I didn't like piano because I was, was really strict and I couldn't play the music I wanted to play. Um, it kind of, that's what kind of got me into composing, I think though, because I would still like sit at the piano and I would make up my own music basically as a way to like trick my mom into thinking I was practicing. <laughs> that's a way of doing it. I like it. <laughs> So your music sounds very exploratory and playful, uh, and you seem to focus on um, weaving timbres that rarely occur with one another, um, which seems pretty feasible for a large ensemble. But I was wondering if you could speak to us a little bit about how you approach small ensemble music uh, differently with the same kind of philosophy, or do you? Obviously, like when you have a large ensemble, you have so many colors and instruments at your disposal, you have kind of maybe not endless possibilities but pretty close to it um but with a smaller ensemble I still try to do that but just um not in the way I combine instruments um but the way I use those certain smaller instruments like uh, for example like I wrote a a solo snare drum piece Hmm. a little while ago and uh that piece isn't played with drumsticks it's played with a credit card and a plastic comb excellent so I think it doesn't really sound like a typical snare drum piece. Um, it's like, even though I had only had one instrument to work with, um, I tried to explore new things as much as I could. I kind of also enjoyed to be like really economical with both like my musical material and just like practical equipment needs, things like that. So for with percussion, you can like have different implements like that. But then I decided to only use like the credit card and the comb mm. to do as much as I could with that. To kind of do as much as you can with a small amount of stuff is something I'm interested in, um, as well as like in large ensemble when I have a lot more stuff to play with. <laughs> I look forward to hearing a solo viola piece with a uh, comb. <laughs> it's funny, a cellist reached out to me um, on Instagram after I was that piece saying like, what could you do with a comb with a cello? And I was like, <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. 
So you're a member of the Blue Dot Collective, uh, which is a group of composers that write, uh, quote, adventurous new music for wind band, end quote. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the new and interesting trends that you see are developing in wind band music and how you see those trends impacting small ensemble music for strings and piano and percussion and voice and so on. Well, wind band is like a community that I've been in since I was a teenager. Um, it's been really exciting to see how that community has embraced living composers, especially the last like 10, 15 years. Like I'll say even that I, you know, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a composer and I knew that it was feasible because I knew that the composers like at the top of the pages of music we were playing, like a lot of them were still alive mm. and published. And they, I'd see them sometimes at like honor bands I did or something, you know, so I like knew that they were a thing. Um, and so it's been nice in the wind band community. They, they call it like kind of, they're having like a new music commissioning renaissance where mm -hmm. there's just so much new music being written. And with so much new music being written, there's just bound to be some that's really exciting and different than what's been written in the past. Also just like kind of the wind band community looking for composers who don't, you know, write a ton of wind band music or have never written a piece for a band before. Oftentimes those composers will come up with like really exciting or unique sounds mm -hmm. that haven't really been explored much in the band repertoire. And I think that that kind of can affect just smaller, you know, ensemble music just because like, say if you're a high school or university student and you are playing music, that's just a lot more adventurous than what you're used to. Those students can like take that philosophy into anything else they do, including their chamber music. Maybe they'll think like, oh, like if I'm playing like, you know, music by a living composer in wind ensemble, like why can't I do that in my chamber ensemble as well? I, th I think that's great. And there is something really refreshing about uh, people who write for WinMed and actually just the fact that a lot of wind ensembles are pedagogical in nature. And we've discussed this with a few, um, a few of our guests in the past that new music doesn't just have to be for professional ensembles or uh, collegiate ensembles. Like actually writing this music for middle and high school bands or amateur bands are actually better ways that your music is going to be performed. Yeah, I agree. And I think something we think about a lot as just classical musicians or especially contemporary classical composers, it's like, what kind of impact am I making? Am I contributing anything of reach to this world? Mm -hmm. Am I impacting people with my music? And if you think about it, like there are, if you're a professional composer, there are like, you know, different avenues you can explore. There are like professional chamber ensembles, the professional orchestras. But then if you like think about like the university, there's a lot of universities in the country, but there's even more high schools. Mm -hmm. And then there's even more middle schools. And think about like how many students or just like young musicians you can reach with your music if you write for the middle school level. Like you can make a really big difference if you write music that's satisfying and exciting for them to play. And also you're like kind of a part of their, uh, you know, beginning of their musical journey. It's really just cool. And in a way you can also make an impact just with showing who you are to the world. Mm. Like, I think it's like, it's cool when I think about some of my pieces for easier grade levels, being in front of these students, them seeing like, a name like Viet Quang, not just because it's my name, but like, because of what it represents for any like, you know, young Vietnamese kids there. Like it kind of warms my heart to think that maybe they can be inspired to do whatever they want to do mm -hmm. by seeing that like someone like, with their own sort of background can do what they want to do. Well, it's a question of visibility, right? It's, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just having that vision is often a, an incredibly powerful thing for children. 
Eighth Blackbird, Soap Percussion, Alarm War Sound, Sandbox Percussion, the Prism Quartet, all sorts of chamber ensembles have commissioned and performed your work. And I am not even mentioning your symphonic commissions, which we very briefly went through at the beginning of the interview. How did you develop these relationships and network um, that has led to the collaborations with these ensembles? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, well, I'll say a lot of them came from just, uh, you know, in grad school, I was so fortunate to go to um, Princeton for my PhD program. And at Princeton, they just really give you so many like opportunities to work with musicians like that, where because Princeton's not a music conservatory, uh, they don't have as many performers as a place like, uh, you know, Juilliard or something. So they oftentimes when students write pieces, they bring in groups to play those pieces. And sometimes they'll bring in groups and say, anyone who wants to write like a saxophone quartet, go ahead, Prism's coming. So I got to write pieces for like, so percussion and Prism in this way. And I think I just got really lucky that they connected with my pieces a lot. And then later on, um, either toured with them or recorded them for an album. Because of that, having really great recordings of my pieces, I was able to put myself out there like on the internet with my music and people have a way of finding your music somehow or maybe because of social media or something and then those lead to other things so it's kind of like in grad school I was able to plant the seeds for my career and like my philosophy with grad school is trying to do a crossfade between being a student and being a professional mm. composer and it worked out <laughs> like, lucky it worked out but it's kind of the way I wanted to approach it. Turning a little bit in a different direction, more of a kind of life skills question. Um, it, one of the things that's current trend is that composers are turning more and more to the computer as a source for both notating and generating music. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about some of the ways that you feel that teachers of young musicians can be preparing their students for working with computers. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there are teachers who are still like against something as simple and useful as listening back to your MIDI. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, of course, it's good to develop your inner ear and be able to like not rely on things like that for every little thing. But there's just so many tools now that are available to young artists or musicians that weren't there before. And it's foolish to not use those. It'd be like if we were saying, don't use the metronome on your phone. You have to use like, <laughs> the old analog one. So, and the computer is a, it's like a great way to make music because it makes it more accessible to people who don't have live performers at their disposal. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I started writing music, I didn't have anything with the exception of like a couple things. I didn't have any of my music played by live musicians mm -hmm. until I got to college. And then when I applied to universities, I only had MIDI recordings. Being open to whatever technology is becoming available. And if a kid like really wants to make music and they're just making it in GarageBand, support that and show them all the different sorts of sounds they can use in GarageBand. And it's never a bad thing for any kid to be interested in making music, no matter what kind of music it is or whatever um, method they use to make it. So I think just in general, teachers should just be, you know, supportive of what their students want to do. Sounds simple, but for some reason, they're like blockers, some teachers to accept that. 
Well, it's interesting. I think it's it's one of those things that a lot of people are resistant to, to things that they don't know and that they weren't trained on, right? I, and I think that there's also a lot of imposter syndrome for they're like, well, I don't know how to use this, so how can I teach it? But I think it's really important the point that you bring up about access. There are a lot of students who just don't have those live musicians in front of them that can perform this way, and I think that that's it's a beautiful thing about technology. I agree. I think the best teachers are ones who don't let their own insecurities get in the way mm-hmm. of their teaching. Teachers who can like admit like, I don't really know how to do that, but like, let's learn it together. And then if that teacher finally does learn it, then they'll know how to do it for other students who have the same questions. Though it is not uncommon for composers to march straight through undergrad and through a doctorate on their way to a college teaching job that will support their writing, it is becoming more and more common for composers to focus their careers on freelance work, not just because there aren't all that many college teaching jobs around. What do you think are the three most vital skills that young composers must develop before they launch into a freelance career? I think one that is perhaps the most important is just to be kind to other people. It's an interesting life as a composer because you have to rely on other people to realize your work, either through performance or commissioning. And because of that, you have to be nice to other people so that they will want to play your music or they'll want to commission you or work with you again. Yeah, and you know, like I mentioned, like in grad school, you know, so percussion came in and played my piece. If I wasn't patient with them when they were having to learn how to play wine glasses, they might not have toured my piece. They might not have played it in Lincoln Center or the Kennedy Center. Just being nice to people, being kind, being grateful for the opportunities you have. Because there's kind of this idea that composers bark orders at people and like we're divas and it's like you can never go wrong when you just are nice to people Mm. Uh, so that's like my main piece of advice for young composers is to uh, even when things aren't going well or maybe like in the first or second rehearsal your piece doesn't sound good like just realize that sometimes it's like not the performer's fault and uh, stay grateful and grounded and then maybe my second piece of advice is that you can make your own luck um, like putting yourself in the right situations. Uh, I'll have an, I have another story from grad school. I don't know why I'm thinking about it a lot these days, but it really was like an important time for me. But like I had this piece I wrote for So Percussion that was for 15 wine glasses and it's very visual. So it's like really important to me to have a video of this piece. And I remember uh, there was a grad student who usually videoed the concerts. So we'd have videos of them. And I remember thinking like, okay, great. I can just like focus on just enjoying the concert like and having my piece played by Sober Hedgen, it's like, it was like a dream come true. But then like two days before the concert, I was like, you know, I should probably like just get my own tripod and set up my own camera because I have one. And it wasn't like that good of a camera, but I was yeah. like, I really need a video of this piece. So I like want to make sure I get one. I remember I set up the camera in the back and I pressed record. And then after the like performance uh, intermission, I went back and then the grad student uh, who was recording the concert was like, yeah, it's so good you had your camera because I completely forgot to bring my SD card and so like my camera ended up being the one that recorded the whole concert <laughs> I was like really happy that I ended up buying this $20 tripod on Amazon and having it delivered having a recording of that piece in a video especially like was what um, I think led to other opportunities for me I think it's directly related to a couple of my commissions the percussion quartet concerto mm-hmm. and it all came down to that $20 tripod and so when I say that it's like <laughs> you can make your own luck there are things you can do to make sure that things happen for you. Um, And then my third piece of advice is you have, you have to be like patient. So like be ambitious, 
put yourself out there and do all that like behind the scenes stuff to make your own luck, but also know that you have to be patient. In my own experiences, there have been times where I've applied to things like that I've wanted to do like opportunities for festivals or like workshops or whatever. And I've had to apply like three or four times. Since you mentioned Larmal Sound, they have this festival every summer at Mizzou. They have composers, like, I don't know, like six or seven who are selected and you get to write a piece for Larmal Sound and they premiere it and give you an amazing recording. And it's uh, a really great time and they're amazing people. And I think I applied for that one four or five times until I was accepted. I'm really happy that I was rejected the first three or four times because if I think back to the first time I applied, I would have written like a really just like mediocre piece because I wasn't as good of a composer yet. And so like this idea of being patient with yourself and like, okay, maybe in the future, if I get it, I'll just write a better piece for them. And so there's so many things like that in my life where I was disappointed before I was, you know, given an opportunity to do something. But when those opportunities came, it was like the right time. I think that's really beautiful. And I think that's something that I professionals as well as students should really take to heart everyone marinades at their own time everyone finds their place in their own time some people might win something straight out of college or when they're 21 years old some people if that doesn't happen that doesn't mean that um everything is over by any stretch of the imagination yeah and I think we do have to talk about failing so quote-unquote failing at things a -hmm. little more because again with social media we we present the best sides of ourselves not always how it works So you recently served as a visiting theory and composition professor at Kennesaw State University. Um, And one of the things that I think is really interesting is the idea of composers teaching theory, uh, because they just bring a naturally different perspective to um, what is otherwise often seen as a um, historical kind of experience. Many theorists recently have been questioning the systemic bias toward Western European music and music theory pedagogy. And I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit of your thoughts on how music theorists and historians, for that matter, are uh, or can address systemic racism in music theory curricula. I think a maybe overly simple way of addressing that is just to study and analyze more types of music. Hmm. Also, just the amount of music that is in this world. And if you even want to think about just the Western world, that's fine. But like, think about all of the music, like 
outside of classical, what we think of as classical music that is really great to listen to and that other people might love to know how it's put together. You know, in the year that I was teaching last year, like a lot of my students want to be video game composers. There's like a really great YouTube channel, 8-Bit Music Theory, and I would like watch those videos to try to like get to know what they were interested in. I think about like something one of my students said was, oh, I want to like take more music theory first so I can get more um, knowledgeable about how to like write music. In some ways I was like, yeah, that's going to be helpful. If you wanted to learn how to write in the style of a 16th or 17th century composer, that's what music theory one is great for. By not being more inclusive of other types of music or like kind of robbing students of you know, knowing how to make music that they're actually interested in listening to or interested in making. I even feel because I went to a music conservatory, my music theory training was super classical Western music. I feel like I was kind of robbed of even just like learning basic jazz music theory that is used in so much video game music and so much uh, pop music even. One of my goals now is just learn more music theory just for myself, just so I can have it, that knowledge for my students as well as making my own music. And one of my uh, professors at Princeton, Dimitri Tomashko, had, has this method of teaching theory that's a lot more encompassing over, or what's the word I'm looking for, just like more inclusive of so many different types of music other than what most music theory one classes are, which is by the end you write a Bach chorale. Find those connections between the music that we studied and learned and other music that have similar ways of being structured or put together and include things and add things to the curriculums that we have to make them better. So with that, that brings us to our final question today. And this is a really fun one. The Washington Post recently featured you as a composer who sounds like tomorrow. Can you tell us what tomorrow sounds like? <laughs> And if I knew, <laughs> I'd bottle it and I'd sell it. No, it's, I, I think, you know, tomorrow sounds like whatever tomorrow's going to sound. It's like kind of, um, that's the fun thing about being a composer is that you can, you kind of don't know what tomorrow is going to sound like. And that's what makes writing music fun is every day it's kind of exploring something new that you are finding a solution in a piece that was driving you crazy that you just could have never thought of yesterday or last week. Not just tomorrow, but next month, like starting a new piece that does something you've never tried before, does something that people have never seen before. So I think that's maybe what tomorrow sounds like. But <laughs> if I knew, my life would be a lot easier. <laughs> Closing might not be as fun, but it'd be a lot easier if I knew what tomorrow sounded like. That wraps up our interview for today with the brilliant and fantastic Viet Quang. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to pop all of your information down in the show notes. So websites, social medias, all of these things. We thoroughly, thoroughly recommend that you check out some of Viet's music, especially his double oboe concerto, which is just really insanely good mm. and without further ado we will see you in a couple of weeks Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, 
and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Viet Quang and performed by Robert Walker, Laura Argenbright, Sandbox Percussion, the Albany Symphony, and the Kaleidoscope Chamber Orchestra. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.